Good morning, everybody. Like most churches, we have a regular liturgy. We sing some songs, we pray, we have announcements in the teaching, but every now and then we want to change it up a little bit. And so today I'm going to ask that everybody stand up today as we read today's passage from Luke chapter 4. This is Luke 4, 14 to 30. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Isn't this Joseph's kid? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. But we have heard that you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And, as, and he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel at this time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which they, the town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Luke. And we thank you for this passage in Luke chapter 4, a watershed moment in which Luke is saying, this is where it's all going to change and this is where his ministry begins. And so God, we pray that my words would fall down and that your words would be lifted up and that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to everybody who is in attendance today, saying exactly what they need to hear and that we might find ourselves in awe of how great and how awesome you are. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Some people come to church and they love taking notes and they break out their notebook or they have their note app on their phone or tablet. Some of you usually sit back and just want to enjoy the message. Today I'm going to ask that everybody take a couple of notes right at the beginning. So whether it's your phone, your tablet, whether it's the offering envelope in front of you, whatever it might be, I want you to write down who are the spheres of influence that you hang out with. Who are the people, the groups, the people that you regularly spend time with? The first group might be those who live in the same house as you. So it might be your family, your brothers, your sisters, your kids, your spouse. It might be roommates. If you're single, you might write down your neighbors. The next sphere of influence, who do you see all the time? So probably the people at work, the people you go to school with, the friends you might be a part of. If you're in a seniors group, maybe you see them on a regular basis. So you have two different spheres. And then a third sphere, who do you hang out with? Who do you play with? Maybe you're on a board, maybe you're part of a reading club, maybe you're on a sports team, maybe you have a regular weekly or monthly hobby. Write down these spheres of influence of people that you're a part of. We'll come back to that at the end of the message. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you are the image of Christ in that place. 
Maybe you talk about the things that are going on. Maybe you say, hey, this is how Jesus has transformed my life. But even if you never talk about God, you are God's representation to the people in that group. Three quick stories. I, when I'm not at soccer, when I'm not at work or at home, I am at the soccer pitch. I love soccer. Being north of 40, it means I'm in the master's team. Everybody has to be at least 35, which means the dressing room smells like Volterran and Tiger Balm. It's awesome. Most of the guys that I play with are Italian of descent, which means they have a Roman Catholic background. And to them, I'm just the priest who stands in nets. And I occasionally get to talk to them about God and about the things that God is doing in my life, and I'll challenge them. I've had a couple people check out sermons online. Some people follow us on Facebook. One time I had somebody come to church, come through the Alpha ministry, become a Christian. His marriage was saved. Awesome story. But for the most part, I'll talk to people about God, and they'll say, hey, Dave, that's really interesting. But I'm not interested. My life is really good. That's really interesting. It's not for me. My life is really good. Second story. After I graduated from Bible college, I didn't become a pastor right away. I actually took a year off, and I thought, I'm going to work in a restaurant and just get some more life experience. And so I worked full-time as a server at the keg, and I quickly became the staff pastor. We're a bunch of 20-somethings. We're all trying to figure out, what's that next stage in life? And I had some great conversations. We would talk about God regularly, number of them came to church with me, both the church I was attending and the church where I eventually became a pastor at. I got to marry one of the couples there. A couple of the girls got pregnant and I got to talk about them, about whether or not they should keep their baby throughout this challenging pregnancy they were having. And in a stage of life, they were open to the gospel. They wanted to hear. They were open and they wanted to hear. Third story. Before I came to Ellerslie, I was a rural church pastor in Alberta Beach. It's about an hour west of the city. And my job description was literally half a page. It said, preach on Sundays, lead small groups, visit us. And I was like, okay, that leaves an awful lot of spare time. And so I thought, how can I get involved in the local community? And this opportunity just fell into my lap to go and spend time every Monday afternoon at an alcohol and drug rehab center. So every Monday, for a number of years, I went to this place, and I would lead small groups, I would give spiritual counsel, I had the privilege of doing a couple funerals, and I led dozens of people to Christ. Every Sunday, people would come to our church, sometimes the, uh, the center would drop them off, sometimes people from our church would go and pick them up. It was a great ministry. They had nothing, and their hope was in Jesus. And the farther down I went through that economic scale, the more people were open and receptive to the good news of Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, you know the passage we're in today. It's Luke chapter four. If you're brand new to church, there should be Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you're at home, you can open up your phone or your tablet or your laptop and follow along uh, from the app that we have on that screen for you. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is in the New Testament, which means it's about uh, the birth and the life of Jesus. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. And as you're opening up, a couple things for you to think about. The first two chapters of Luke are all about the birth narrative. We went through it in December, talking about all the stories, everything surrounding the birth of Jesus. Chapter three, the first half of chapter four, is preparation for Jesus' ministry. It's about him getting baptized. It's about him being tempted in the desert by the devil. And then we arrive at Luke chapter four. And this is where Jesus' ministry begins. Picking up in verses 14 to 15. 
Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out about him through the surrounding community. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. I remember reading the Bible for the first time in high school and thinking, why does God keep repeating himself over and over and over again? And I'm reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'm thinking, how many times does he feed the 5,000? How many times is he going to heal that same leper? How many times is he going to teach the same thing over and over again? And if you're new to church or just need a reminder of how it works, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the, Bible, uh, of the New Testament, are called Gospels. They're basically biographies on Jesus' life. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptic gospels. Synoptic means to have a common view. You might be thinking, Dave, why are you telling us this? These first three books of the Bible are going to have the same stories over and over again. And what's interesting is this rejection of Jesus at Nazareth actually happens in totally different places in all three of those gospels. Matthew is 28 chapters long. Matthew doesn't write about this until chapter 13, almost the middle. Mark is about 16 chapters long. He writes about it in chapter six. And so Jesus has already been doing his ministry. He's already been teaching. He's already been performing miracles. He's already called his disciples. But Luke takes this story and he says, this is the first thing that I wanna talk about. He's not saying it's the first thing that happens. You, we already read twice this morning that he's gone about and people have heard that he's done great things. And he's finally come home. And the people of Nazareth would know all about Jesus. In the first century, you don't move around a whole lot. And so they know Mary and Joseph, his parents. So their kids may have played with Jesus and watched him grow up. There's an understanding, hey, we know who Jesus is. And when he was here in Nazareth, we thought he was special back then. Going to the synagogue 2,000 years ago is a lot like coming to church today. The temple of the synagogue in Nazareth would have been seating about 300 people. So it's a pretty good-sized place of worship. And an order of worship would look almost identical to what we do. There'd be singing, there'd be scripture reading, there'd be teaching, and there would be prayer. And now the favorite son has come back home. To kind of put this into perspective, uh, many of you who are regular attenders would know who David Holzman is. He has a beard. He was playing drums today. He normally gives the announcements. And we love David. We hired David right out of Bible college. He was like 21 or 22 years old. When, when we brought him on to staff, he was single. Many of us were at his wedding. We've cheered him on. Two weeks ago, he preached. He is growing in leadership and in wisdom. And imagine all he does is have this upward trajectory. And we celebrate as he becomes an even better speaker, an even better leader. And eventually someone says, you know, you should start your own ministry. And he has doors open up for him. And suddenly he's traveling all across North America, teaching and telling people about Jesus and making disciples. Two or three years later, he comes back to Ellerslie. And those of us who remembered him are so grateful that he's back. And there's this excitement. There's this anticipation. What is David going to say? What is going to happen? This is the anticipation for Jesus. We knew God had great things in store for him. How is he going to respond? What's he going to teach us? What is he going to say to us this morning? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If you enjoy taking notes, the first part of our outline, it's good news to the poor. You see, well, we open our Bibles and it's nicely broken up for us. We have the title of the book, we have the chapter numbers, we have the verse numbers, but chapter numbers and verse numbers didn't come in until the absolute earliest in the fourth century and even then was not widely spread at all. It wasn't until the 15th century that it really became common. And so Jesus is handed this large scroll. He starts at the back, slowly moves his way um, from the 66th chapter to what we know as the 61st chapter and he speaks these encouraging words. And upon hearing them, the Jews would have been thrilled. This is a message, Isaiah 61, of God's favorites, of God's deliverance, the promise of coming salvation. Could it be after 400 years of silence that finally the Savior, God has sent a Messiah to deliver us from the evil one? And they're excited about this and they're thinking, this is so great. We were under captivity to Babylon and we were under captivity to Persia and we were under captivity to the Greeks and now we're under the evil Romans and God has come to bring good news to the poor and the people rejoice. It's this beautiful picture of spiritual liberation and the poor from the town of Nazareth cannot believe their ears. Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, This is the fulfillment of this prophecy. They've seen God's hand on him. They watched him grow up and they thought, this is a really special kid. He always obeys his parents. He's full of wisdom and knowledge and understanding so much that even the rabbis are impressed. We've heard miracles of how he cast out demons, of how he healed the sick. There's even a rumor going around. They were in a boat and he calmed the storm. But it goes even deeper than the original audience understands. Because they hear about it and they think, oh, this is about the physically poor. And Jesus is thinking, oh, it's about so much more than that. It's about the spiritually poor as well. This is about freedom from captivity of Rome. And Jesus goes, oh, it's so much more than that. It's about freedom from the captivity of sin. This isn't just about giving sight to the physically blind. This is about opening the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. This isn't just about a year of God's favor. This is about an eternity of God's favor. But Jesus doesn't just quote from Isaiah 61. He also has a single line that he inserts from, uh, pardon me, from Isaiah 61. um, A single line from Isaiah 58. The last line in Luke 4.18, if you have your Bibles open, you can see it. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. It sounds like it belongs. It fits so well with everything else Jesus is saying, but there's a completely different idea that's taking place. Isaiah 61 is all about the Lord's favor. Isaiah 58 is a prophetic rebuke. Here's the context. Isaiah 58 verse five. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, says God? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? The quote's from 58 verse six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. In other words, Israel, you are so arrogant that you think this passage is about you. 
Do you not care about your neighbor? Do you not care about your friends? Do you not care about those who are different than you, talk different than you, look different than you, have different nationalities than you? I haven't come just for the poor of Israel. I've come from the poor of the whole world. I mentioned earlier that Matthew puts this in the middle of his message, his gospel. Mark puts it near the beginning, but not at the very beginning. Why does Luke put it right here at the start of Jesus' ministry? Luke is written for a Gentile audience. Remember, a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. And one of the major themes in Luke is the great reversal. Luke is passionate about the marginalized. In essence, what Luke is saying, do you know what makes Jesus such a game changer? He's going to talk about Gentiles and women and children the oppressed, the sick, the poor. This is who Jesus came to minister to. All of these will get special attention in this book. Look at how the people respond in verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? When we hear the gospel, we run things through our grid. I remember my theology professor said, all of us come without any objectivity. All of us come with our own background, whether it's a national background, a family background, a schooling background, a socioeconomic background. All of us come with our own background and all of us are going to hear what God has to say through our own personal grid and the Jews are no different. The Jews are waiting for the Messiah. The Jews are waiting for a savior. And Jesus arrives, he reads from Isaiah 61 and he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And so the Jews think, this is it. Jesus is saying he is the Messiah. And it's a fascinating comment because you would think they would get mad and they would get angry because that's what happens in other parts of the gospel, but they don't. In fact, it's rather ambivalent. Perhaps you've heard great orators before. Maybe it's someone who's speaking at a conference. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's a defense attorney. And you hear them and you think, well, it's really passionate. But I'm not sure I totally agree. I was in grade eight when the O.J. Simpson trial was taking place, and my social studies teacher was fascinated by it, and we had to copy notes from an overhead projector while she watched the O.J. Simpson trial. And do you guys remember what one of the most famous lines was? Robert Shapiro stood up and he said, if the glove doesn't fit... If the glove doesn't fit, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And people are sitting, yeah, that's probably true. And other people are going, eh, I don't know. 300 people in the synagogue at Nazareth. I read six commentaries this past week. Three said they thought one way, three said the other. And I thought, couldn't it both be true? 300 people hearing that Jesus himself is saying, I am the fulfillment I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. And half the crowd thinking, isn't this Joseph's son? Another half going, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus started by telling them his mission. I've come to bring good news to the poor and set the captives free. But they have a question. Well, who are the poor? The sparks are about to fly, but before we get to that, we need to deal with this little comment about Jesus calling himself the Messiah. Verses 23 
and 24. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. As soon as Jesus uttered that phrase, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, there is no doubt everyone in the synagogue thought he's calling himself the Messiah. But there's no outrage. And so he recognizes quickly, they don't understand what I'm trying to say. The proverb, physician, heal yourself, basically means if a doctor has a rash, he should know how to heal it. If you ask a contractor how to build a deck, he should know how to do it. If you ask a soccer player how to kick a ball, he'll know how to do it. If he's the Messiah, show us a miracle, Jesus. Show us a miracle. But in this particular instance, Jesus doesn't want to talk about himself. He wants to talk about his mission. And so he creates his own segue. He reminds the people that the prophets have been, how the prophets have been treated all throughout history. And the Jews would quickly remember, yeah, no prophet is really accepted in his hometown. Jesus reminds his listeners, not only are prophets not respected in their hometown, he's saying, hey, speaking about prophets, let me tell you something about them. This is 24 to 27. Truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The reason I wanted to read the scripture at the beginning is so we could see what happened next. You know that the roof is about to get blown off the building. But why? What did Jesus say that was so inflammatory? casual observation, you would look at that and you go, he healed a leper and he helped out a widow? What's so bad about that? But if we're looking a little bit deeper at the text, we realize something else is going on here. There are many widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah to none of them. In other words, God's greatest prophet, Elijah, wasn't sent to a Jew but was sent to a Gentile. And there's a slow burn that starts to happen to the people in the room. With that in your mind, you can probably guess who Naaman is as well. They're upset about God helping Naaman because of all the lepers in Israel, none of them were cleansed. But who did Elisha, Elijah's successor, go and heal? An unclean Gentile from Syria. And they are livid. But why is that so bad? Let's peel back another layer and see what really happens. You'll notice in verse 25, Jesus mentions that there's a famine all across Israel. Well, what caused that famine? We read in 1 Kings 18, verse 18, that Elijah goes to the prophet of Israel, um, goes to the king of Israel and says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah said, but you and your father's family have, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. The Baals are God's that are falsely worshipped by the Canaanites. This is of great importance. Since the nation of Israel turned her back on God, God takes the good news elsewhere. Since the nation of Israel turns her back on God, God is going to take the good news elsewhere and takes that good news to a Gentile widow 
1 Kings 17, 24, the widow said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And this slow burn starts to take place. Well, what about Naaman? This is fascinating. He's not just some poor leper who's a Gentile. Look at this. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Syria. You want to take a wild guess as to who Syria had their victory over? Israel. In fact, he's healed in 2 Kings chapter 5. You know who Syria goes to war against in 2 Kings 6? Israel again. Now we don't know what role Naaman played in this event, hopefully none at all, but he's never mentioned once in all of scripture outside of 2 Kings 5 and Luke chapter 4. That's his only mention. And that slow burn that's taking place among the Jews gets erupt and turns into a raging fire. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, Jesus went on their way. Different translations will have different words here, but they are not mildly upset. They are furious. They are spitting venom. This is anger to the nth degree. This is a game changer, and it's totally fascinating. Jesus, from his hometown of Nazareth, comes back home, and he says to all the people in attendance, I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. Me, the one you watched grow up. And people are like, okay, maybe you are. Maybe you're not. And Jesus realizes, wait, they didn't understand. Then he gives them two examples of the poor, and both are examples from Gentiles. The first is a Gentile widow, an outsider on the edge of society who is physically poor. They're okay with that. They don't love it. The second is a Gentile army commander, an insider who has the ear of the king, and he's physically rich. Both are spiritually poor. Both need the good news of God. Both need freedom. And the Jews are angry. You can't do this, Jesus. It's one thing for God to help out a poor widow. Who cares? But you can't come and help out our enemy. You're supposed to destroy our enemy, not help him. What is this? What's going on? What are you doing? You have no idea what you're talking about. Off with his head. It's a game changer. He's shifting their paradigm, and they hate it. Who are the poor? Well, according to the Jews, it's us. We're the captives. We've been captive to Babylon, to Persia, to the Greeks, and now to the Romans. We're the poor. Jesus shows up, and he says, no, you're not. Who are really the poor? The poor are those who acknowledge their need for a savior. Do you remember how Jesus starts his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember the first words from his lips? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. Jesus needs to define who are the poor. And Jesus came to serve the poor. But just like the first century Jews, we must not automatically think we know what that means. Jesus comes to Nazareth. He opens the scriptures and he says, 
the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And that little line from verse from 58, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke chapter four is a quotation from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is the fulfillment of Leviticus 25. And everybody in the room knows what happens in Leviticus 25, right? Leviticus 25 is the year of Jubilee. And God says to his teacher Moses, Moses, I want you to describe to all the people how great I am. And seven years times seven, a Sabbath of Sabbaths, we are going to gather together and practice the year of Jubilee. Everybody can return home. Everyone can return to their family. Everyone can have all their debts paid. It sounds awesome. Do you know how much it happened? Never. Not once. Not one time in all of Israel's history does the year of Jubilee ever take place and then Jesus stands up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and says, I am the fulfillment. I am the older brother who invites everybody to come back home and is welcome to family. I am the one who is providing a place for you and everyone can call home. I am the one and myself only who can wipe away every debt, the debt of sin so that you can spend eternity with me. And we hear this good news and we celebrate. But he says there's a catch. You see, you people of Israel, you think you have this figured out. And so I'm going to tell you two stories. I'm going to tell you about a widow, a Gentile who is physically poor. And I'm going to tell you another story about an army commander who is physically rich. Do you notice what he doesn't talk about? The middle class. And I wonder, I wonder if he wants the Jews to go, we're the middle class. Because we think we have it figured out. We think, you know, God owes us something. We're the poor of Israel. God, you have to come and you have to rescue us. We go to church every Sunday. We sing the songs. We read the scriptures. We listen to the teachings. We pray together. And Jesus goes, yep. And it's not enough. And we hear this passage and we think about this poor widow Gentile. And we think about this rich army commander. And do we realize that we're the middle class? And that Jesus is saying that anybody who wants to embrace the year of Jubilee, anyone who wants to come into the family of God, anyone who wants to have a home for all of eternity in heaven, anyone who wants to have their debts paid has to say, I'm spiritually poor. I'm in need of you. Only Jesus can wash away our sins. And until we recognize that, we cannot be in relationship with him. He is the savior of the world. He is the one who welcomes us into his family. He is the one who says, come to me, all you who are willing. Are we? And if you're here today, if you're watching from home and you say, that's the Jesus I want to worship. That's the Jesus I want to be in relationship. One who welcomes me into family. One who welcomes me home. One who washes away all my sins. And will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you that you are the one who cleanses us from sin. Help us, God, to believe in you.
to believe that a loving God sent his only son by the power of his Holy Spirit, we can fall in love with you and worship you every day of our lives. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. Fill out a connecting card in person or online. But there's one last thing. You see, God talks about who the poor are and he talks about the spiritually poor. But his whole mission in the gospel of Luke is about those who are also physically poor and to set those captives free. And I want you to go back to how we started. What are the three or more spheres you wrote about? Who are your family members? Who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? Who are your classmates? Who are the people you hang out with? Who are the people you have fun with? Who needs to hear the good news of Jesus? And there's something fascinating that takes place because over the course of history, not just in my personal experience, probably not just in your personal experience, it's the poor, it's the outcasts, it's the captives, it's those who are on the fringes of society who are more likely to turn to Jesus. It's women before men. It's kids before adults. It's the outcasts before the insiders who say, this God is awesome. And we have strategic directions as a church and we live in the wealthiest ward in the entire city. And we recognize that we're here for young families and we're here to engage the discipleship journey. And then there's that fourth part. We wanna be people of influence who inv uh, invite, include, and invest. And we are so captured by that that are we looking around and still seeing those who need help. And you might say, Dave, I, I live in a nice neighborhood. Awesome, good for you, praise God for that. Are you captured by the poor? Do you set yourselves aside because the poor need something from us too? And do you recognize, you know, if we're a church that's about young families, maybe, maybe we can help out with a pregnancy care center. Maybe we can help out with Adira and women who are running away from abusive relationships and don't know where to go. Maybe there's families in our church who don't know Jesus and don't have the finances to follow him or to even put food on the table and we can stand up and we can help. Because what the good news that God has to offer isn't just a physical good news, it's a spiritual good news. And it's not just a spiritual good news, it's a physical good news. And God is saying, this good news is for everybody. And it's a game changer. And so will your eyes be open like Elijah's were and Elisha's were, like Jesus has called us to be and have our eyes open for the poor, being aware of the needs around us wherever we might find ourselves. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up as I pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you that you care so deeply about us. And while so many people will say, well, if the poor don't understand or if the less fortunate don't understand, that's okay. You come and you turn that on its head. And you say, no, I've come especially for them. And God, may we be so in tune with you that wherever you have us, at home, at work, at school, at play, that our eyes would be opened. And that as we walk by somebody who might be homeless or might be in dire straits, that we would not think less of that person, but that we would recognize that, but for the grace of God, I might be in the same circumstance. And that we would love deeply, we would serve faithfully, and we would bring good news to the poor and we would see captives set free. And the good news of the gospel would spread wherever we go. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' powerful name, amen.